Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Relationships. Well, we're finishing up a series this morning that we've been in for six weeks, five weeks now. And uh, I thought the July 4th weekend, what a great time to talk about the relationship between our country and Christians. Uh, Just to jump in stuff. So, I mean, you know, just to have some fun. Uh, I walked in my dad's house here a, a couple of years, a few years back, and there was this plaque hanging on the wall that I'd never seen before. And I said, Dad, where'd... my dad's 94. He's a veteran of World War II and, and uh, just as sharp as ever at 94. And he said, oh, I don't know. Somebody came by and said, hey, we want to give this to you. And, and I, I looked at it, and it's our family lineage all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And there are... Four here, uh, Revolutionary War soldiers served under Francis Marion, Revolutionary, another one, a farmer, patriot, furnished supplies to the Francis Marion Army, Uh, another one, Revolutionary War soldier served under Francis Marion, and another one, Revolutionary War soldier served under Francis Marion, and then there's William Holt, minister, during the same period of time. I couldn't help but think. I wonder what he was like, you know, during the Revolutionary War, along with his cousins and, and all during that period of time. So I have a, I have a long, I have a long uh, pedigree of redneckism <laughs> that goes all the way back, you know, for way over 200 years. So, uh, you know, when I stand up here, you know, this is what you get. And, uh, and I am very appreciative to all who have served and uh, who have done so much to see that uh, we live in the country that we live in. And thank you, and thank you to all, even all of you who vote and all of you who take your responsibility seriously in this country. And my, what a wonderful year we're in election-wise, huh? I mean, isn't this just the, I mean, I feel the country just coming together. The unity is, (laughs) the unity is overwhelming. I've I've never, never seen anything like it. It's, people are just smiling and happy and the blogs and the news it's like we're in a renaissance period. I don't know. It's uh, probably more like another revolution, it seems like. I'm a, you know, more of a cultural-type revolution. But where do we fit, you know, those of you who are followers of Christ? And if you are not a follower of Christ yet, I'm so glad you're here. I really am uh, because you get to hear me talk about what it means to be someone who wants to follow Jesus and as a church who who wants to be the church uh, in the world and, and being a part, but not of it, as, the, as Jesus told us that we were in it, but we weren't a part of it, which puts us in a really kind of odd place, doesn't it? And so we want to talk about that a little bit. I want to read a, a quote from an author, uh, one of the books I read. This quote just struck me, and uh, I understand that you are afraid of evangelicals talking to the people reading his book because of their overt religiosity. You see them praying over their food in restaurants and carrying their Bibles and talking about voting the way Jesus instructed them to vote. But as secularists, we have nothing to fear from evangelicals. Despite all of their talk about being different and distinct, 
evangelical churches are shot through with American pop psychology and Oprah-style spirituality. Yes, they are a little annoying with all their Jesus talk, but don't worry, they don't mean it. <laughs> very bright man, and, very, and I enjoyed the book, actually. It's a good book. But where do we fit in? You know, how do we fit in in such a contentious culture? And, and what I do believe uh, is a hinge pin of, of history in many ways. What is the church to do? What is a, what is a Christian to do? Uh, we're going to talk uh, about a guy named Daniel this morning. We're going to be over in the first chapter uh, of it. If you have your Bibles or your app and you want to open it up, it's going to be on the screen as well. I think there are probably, the whole Bible is applicable, of course, but I think thinking about where we are today uh, in our country, and I, I would say more so in our culture, it, I think that First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament is so just so usable. It's, it's user-friendly because of the city of Corinth being a coastal city and also being a place of just multiple types of people and most of them are not Jewish in Corinth. And so not knowing what Christianity is, not knowing what faith is, and just trying, and Paul trying to engage with those new believers. I, I take great comfort when I read First and Second Corinthians as I talk to my friends who uh, are not quite followers of Christ yet because I get help from First and Second Corinthians in many ways. And, but I think the book of Daniel is like that in the Old Testament. Here we have a culture, Babylon, who rushes in and takes Judah, takes, it takes three different efforts to get into Judah, which is modern-day Israel, to get into Judah and to ransack it. But after three different pushes in, the walls are torn down. Uh, the Babylonians move in. They ransack the temple. They take the temple, uh, the instruments of the temple, back to Babylon with them. And that's not all they do. They also take back our friends, Daniel and his three friends, and uh, uh, back to Babylon. And the more I read, the more I listen, and uh, it's like we're going back to Babylon. It's kind of like we, in a way, have found ourselves in Babylon. And uh, I say that not in any way as a negative thing, as we're going to see. I say that in a sobering way, but not in a negative way. Because we, we followers of Christ, we have a city that is not made by hand. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And these may sound like cliches, but these are straight out of the scripture. And I take great comfort and hope in these words, especially at this time in our culture. So we're going to read, uh, we'll just read the text first. And before I read this, I, 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 this may not, this won't be new news to you guys, to many of you, but there is a pushback on Christians, in a way, in this country, and that's especially true when it comes to the intellectual elite in that are pushing back on uh, those of us who have faith and that uh, want to diminish what we have to say and to relegate us to being ignorant and, and dumb and such. Uh, George Yancey, who I met uh, probably about 10 years ago, uh, Dr. George Yancey, I think we have a picture of him. There he is. Dr. Yancey has helped us in the vineyard with uh, racial issues and all. Dr. Yancey says this, I've experienced way more bigotry for being a Christian at my university than ever being an African-American. That's a profound statement. Uh, he's at the University of North Texas, or University of Texas North, I think it is. 
And uh, he is a wonderful man. I've got five of his books. If anybody wants to borrow one of them, uh, you can. He's, he's a really intelligent man. But for George to say that in his experience is how we know there's a pushback in our culture. That there is a, a whole different mindset and worldview in a way going on than maybe what we have in the church and those of us who follow Jesus. So we're going to take a look at Daniel as he is taken from everything that is familiar to him and taken into a whole nother culture. And what I want to do today is kind of look at how the Babylonian culture, how they went about trying to change Daniel and his friends so that we can be aware of some things in our own lives. And listen, I am so grateful again. I got such a heritage I am grateful for the United States of America. My dad's a like, World War II vet, a family and heritage and all this kind of stuff. But I am so excited about the kingdom I am a part of. And that is the kingdom of God, the city of God. And so let's see what we can learn from this very young man, probably maybe as young as 13 years old, 14 years old at the time that he was taken captive. A very young man. And so let's read this and I'll pray and we'll jump into it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the chief official, gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Father, I bless your word this morning. We pray your presence here. And uh, Jesus, would you give me the gift of teaching this morning? This uh, wonderful day, July 4th, 2016, would you come be with us? Help me, Lord, as we navigate the waters of trying to see... Lord, how to live in a culture that is so different than your kingdom. So, Lord, be with us. We celebrate the freedom that is ours, not just in this country, but, Lord, in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've got a fill-in in the back of your handout. Actually, I think if you flip it over, it's back there. And I want to point out a few things. And the first one is in verse 1. Notice this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That is just a historical statement, right? It's just a linear statement. This is what happened in history. This is it. And if we stopped right there, we'd think, well, that's, you know, nothing going on. Nebuchadnezzar came in, he took over. But the next verse really enlightens everything. It says, the Lord, right? delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It's not just a linear, horizontal-type relationship that we're talking about in, in, in our way of looking at life and at culture, but God is in control. 
God was in control of that moment in time. And though it's a cliched bumper sticker, God is in control. It really doesn't mean that much until you get to a place where you're not in control. (laughs) That is when it is very helpful to realize there is more going on than history. That indeed, God is in control and there is something that we probably can't see. And, uh, and there's great trust in that for us. And as Christians in this, again, wonderful, as sarcastic as I can be at times, unified time in our country, it is very important that we remember that God is in control. He's not just in control of you or whatever you might think. He's in control of everything from time beginning to time end. He sees it all from the end to the beginning and back. And so when we get so frustrated and we feel like we're losing control, remember, God is in control. And I wonder what went through Daniel and his friends' minds, you know, as they were taken as young kids away from everything that they knew, everything, their family, their home, their worship, all of it, and taken into a strange country with different values. In the 5th century, 4th, 5th century, there was a man named Augustine, uh, Augustine, what a, what a great story. If you want to read about someone, you should read about him. Here was a party animal. Uh, I don't know what that was like in the 4th century, 5th century, party animal. You know, his, the, his, the biographies of him said he would go to the, to the real uh, baldy, you know, like comedies of the day. And he would drink and he would get drunk and he just had fun with his friends and all. But he had, he had a pagan father and he had a Christian mother, Monica. Monica prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him, and she continued to pray for him. Uh, he would go to church. He would go to, to, uh, to church just to hear the preachers preach because he wanted to learn to be eloquent. And in that day, the preachers were known to be some of the most uh, well-read people and, and best speakers. And so he would go, and there was one named Ambrose that he went to hear, and he listened to Ambrose preach, and he was struck by the way Ambrose Ambrose brought the gospel to him. And so Augustine, Augustine went to him and began to ask Ambrose questions, and it put him on this journey. And eventually he was confronted in a very beautiful spiritual way by a verse out of Romans about his, his uh, party life and how God was not in that. And Augustine be- became probably the most notable of our church fathers in many ways. Well, he wrote a book in the 5th century called The City of God. In the 5th century, Rome, which was known to be everything, I mean, the world could not exist without Rome, right? Because it had been, it had always been, and it will always be. Well, in the 5th century, the Visigoths, the barbarians, came into Rome because they were owed a bunch of money uh, by, by Rome because they had fought for them. And they came in and ransacked and tore Rome to shreds. And Rome ceased to be the world influence that it was. And everybody began to get so upset because they said, what is going to happen to the world? The world is going to end now because Rome has ended. And Augustine looked at this and he says, people don't know the difference in the city of man and the city of God. Or the earthly city, as it said in the book, the city of God. It's a great read. It's challenging. It's thick. But it's a great read. 
And so he pointed his generation and he pointed his culture, and I believe he is still pointing us back to this point. And that is that Christianity did not fall or rise on the fall or rise of Rome. Neither does it rise or fall on the rise or fall of America. I am grateful for America. I'm glad I'm an American. That's great. Yahoo, it's good. But I am so grateful that God in his sovereignty called me, elected you guys, all of us, I believe, called all of us to serve him into the city of God, which has no maker and cannot be shaken at all. And Augustine wanted to point to the people in Rome, especially the Christians, that listen, because Rome has been demolished does not mean, does not mean the city of God has been demolished. There were some that accused the Christians of causing it to happen because they said, you Christians, you pray to the one God. If you've been praying to all the gods that we have in Rome, this wouldn't have happened. You made the gods mad. Now they've torn down Rome. And so Christians were persecuted because of that. And yet Augustine continued to point to that. The city of man is not the city of God. And so there's freedom in the city of God. There's freedom in the spirit. But we on this 4th of July... Our church here, I believe we need to keep in mind in this contentious election year just which city we primarily are citizens of. Because I always, you look at history and it's like, you know, countries are birthed, democracies are birthed, and they do this for a while, and then you see them begin to fragment and they do this. Then they're rebirthed and they're rebirthed. But the kingdom of God is so different than that because the kingdom of God is a mustard seed, very small. It is the great treasure that's buried in a field, Jesus tells us about, that you should sell everything you have for to go find and buy it. It's so small, it looks like it's not that powerful, but it's worth everything you have to attain it. But this kingdom starts small. It starts in a servant. It starts in God himself who got on his knees with a towel and got down before his disciples and washed their feet on the night that he was betrayed. This kingdom is birthed with a risen Christ in his glorified body sitting on the beach cooking breakfast for those same disciples. This kingdom starts like that because who would ever say that was an awesome kingdom? It starts small and then the kingdom of God begins to do this and this and this and this and it is continuing every moment to do this, to do this and it's not Something that you can elect people into yourself. It's not anything that takes over the world with power. It takes it over with love. And it takes it over with serving like Jesus showed us. Let's remember God is in control when we hit times like this. You know, Daniel had to be uncomfortable at that moment in time. Don't you think? Are you uncomfortable in this world at times, Christian? Do you feel a little rubbed sometimes, I mean, with, uh, with the way that co- things that culture says is okay? I mean, if you've had kids and you've watched your kids have to deal with certain things in culture, much less yourself, as you watch that and you just, you go, well, you know, there are some things that we should be uncomfortable with. We should feel a little out of sorts with things. Jesus did say there's a narrow way and there's a broad way, right? There's a wide gate, there's a narrow gate. Jesus did say that. It's the narrow gate. It's the narrow way. And that, when you're narrow, living in a place that's wide, it can cause a little discomfort at times. And yet we are called 
to walk the narrow way in a very broad culture. Um, I said that Christianity does not rise or fall on America. And I want you to think back. Uh, I heard Pastor Rich Nathan say this, and I went back and studied this out and or looked it up, and it's true. I mean, Rome in the 5th century, of course, obviously not the city of God, right? It fell. We just move up to France in the 12th century. It was just awesome. That period of France, the Capetian era was beautiful and wonderful. And who would have ever thought France would have ever fall, fallen? But what? It did. Spain, 16th century, known as the Golden Era. One, one of the, when I was studying this, one of the, uh, the scholars and the leaders of that era said that Spain would live forever during the 16th century. But it didn't. Not the city of God. Did the city of God cease to exist because Spain ceased to be as important as it was? No. England, 19th century. Victorian age, beautiful age. So many things that were happening. Nothing can stop it. It would be the preeminent and the most important country in the world forever. City of God? No. Didn't last. China, the 20th century. They took control of their country. They chased down every Christian. The Red Guards went into the churches, burnt them down, went into all the small groups, killed, pillaged, did everything they could to wipe out Christianity in the 20th century. What, did it destroy the city of God? There are more Christians in China now than there's been at any time. Millions of believers in China this morning, worshiping underground maybe, yes, but still, the kingdom of God continues to move forward. America, the 21st century. Oh, God, I just wonder if you're tapping your foot looking at us. You're so impatient with us in America. We're at a place where if we don't survive like we want it to be, Christianity will not survive. That is not the truth, my friend. God is in control. And the kingdom of God, the city of God, is not the city of man. And we hold on to that. Yes, vote, do what you should do. Be a great citizen. But dear Christian, remember this. You are first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of God. God has placed you here as his citizen. He has a job for you to do. That is our calling. That is where we are. And no matter what goes here or there, the kingdom of God continues to grow like that mustard seed until it's taken the whole world. Second thing is here, this is a... is. is where the rub comes, is that our culture tries to control, tries to take control. It does what it can to control us. And, and if you look in this passage of Scripture, we see the ways that, just like in Daniel's day, they, it's still happening right now. In verse 2 and verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and brought them in and and showing them, you know, he picked the ones that had aptitude. He picked the ones that were physically attractive. He picked the ones Nebuchadnezzar did and Ashpenaz. Those that were at the top, intellectually, uh, athletic-wise, and on. That is, how does our culture try to take control? Well, first they go and they identify. Or they're identifying the ones that, uh, 
And this is a culture. I'm not blaming this on one person. You get this, don't you? This is a systemic thing. This is a culture that does this. And so, but there is a strategy in it. And in Daniel's day in Babylon, they would identify out of Judah those men like Daniel that had something to offer. So that happens. Where does that happen now? We see it in university, don't we? I mean, you know, you, you, find, you find this star, you find this one. We find it in the arts community. We find it anywhere. If there's, if there's someone that stands out and then we move toward them and we try to recruit them, right, to us. Now, that's all in good. You think that's good until you see the rest of this. And, I mean, that's, that's great. They identify. It happens in university. It happens with people who have certain talents and Maybe you were raised to believe in Christ. You had this firm foundation in Jesus. And then someone outside of that is identifying you as being super valuable. And they want you and they want your services. And so they call and they woo on you. And that leads to the next thing in Daniel's uh, story in verses 2 and 3 of isolating. Take those boys away from where they were so comfortable. From their family, from their friends, and most of all from their faith. Take them away from everything they know and bring them into a whole nother culture. And the biggest thing was it wasn't a culture of the Lord God. It was away from that. It was many gods. The Babylonians did have their own gods, but it wasn't the one true God. And so that isolation goes on. And I'm not saying we don't get scholarships. I'm not saying you don't do all of this. I want you to be aware of that even in the midst of our own culture, sometimes we don't even know what's happening. And Daniel is a great example of that. And suddenly an 18-year-old is pulled out of their youth group, pulled out of their church, pulled out of their Bible study, and they're shoved over into another culture. And sometimes, as you well know, you get into your dorm and you wake up and the person that's next to you does not believe anything like you believe. And a matter of fact, they probably they may believe the exact opposite. And there you are by yourself away. I wonder how many of us, how many of us adults would even last three, four months, not having any fellowship, no church, no friends that are Christian, if we were pulled out for three or four months away from that and away from that uh, impartation of scripture and walking together in the faith, how many of us would last and still remain faithful to God if we were pulled out, isolated? And yet we expect 18, 19, 20-year-olds to do it. You know, what, I'm, what am I saying to him? I'm saying we've got to sink our roots deep, deep, deep into the city of God, not the city of man. And while we function in the city of man and we are citizens here, we have a dual citizenship, we are primarily, first and foremost, citizens of the kingdom of God. The first question you know, I think when someone should go off to university is what church are they going to go to when you get there? Did you check that out? Uh, Pastor Rich Nathan said that he took one of his kids to uh, a school, a really, really good school to, for their freshman year and was listening to the person explain what the school was like. And this young lady got up in front with all smiles and said, we are going to take your child and we are going to teach them to question every single thing you taught them for the past 18 years with a big smile on her face. And Rich goes in for this, you want me to pay you, right? <laughs> just blatant, just blatant. We're going to teach you to question every part of their life, all of their belief system, every bit of it. Now, I know where they're coming from. 
I know where they're coming from, but do you think we're prepared at that point in time to deal with all of this? And I'm not saying we don't have to go into that. I'm saying we need to prepare for it and realize there is a cultural clash here between the city of man and the city of God. And we are here for this purpose, church. God planted us here to be a part of this world, of our communities of our education process, even the political process, to be a part, but we're first and primary citizens of the kingdom of God. I think for us as a church, too, it's creating that pipeline of, you know, that pipeline of uh, creating leaders in the church from the cradle right on into careers where we have, we have students who have such a foundation in faith that when they go to university or when they find themselves in places like this, they have the tools and the resources to stand and to, to support them. When, when our children start businesses or take businesses, they know what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and how they do their business. And, and they're strong and the roots of their faith are sunken deep down so that they can, they can navigate these waters well. That's the importance of the church. And I think it's important also, just like Lauren, what Lauren does. Lauren, wave your hand over here. This is LL Cool Bass over here. Uh, <laughs> Lauren is an intervarsity missionary at Coastal. Go Coastal! Woo! That's right. Awesome. And uh, Lauren is also on, on my pit crew, my preaching team. And she is doing all she can to disciple and to minister to the students at Coastal. And, I mean, we get in behind Lauren. We support her. We pray for her. We encourage her. Uh, we need more Laurens. We need more people doing this. And uh, we don't. Step back. We don't go into hiding. We don't run off and become monks or Luddites or whatever. You know, we push forward, and, uh, but we push forward in wisdom and in faith that we are primarily citizens of the kingdom. And we are here salt and light and, uh, because there is always a systemic pressure pushing in on us all the time to isolate and to identify us. And then the the next thing that happens is look in uh, verse 4. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And that is they went about indoctrinating. They went about teaching them the Babylonian values. Here's the way we live versus the way you Jewish boys lived over in Judah. Here's what you're going to have to do here in Babylon. And... um, there's a worldview of differences, you know, in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man or the city of man. And um, when someone challenged, I think it's great to be challenged. I have conversations regularly with people that challenge what I believe, and I like it. But I have worked really hard to expose myself to as much information as I can and how to deal with it. I don't have all the answers, no, but I have enough that I, I do believe my feet are, are pretty deep, upon, way down in the rock of Christ. My first, some of you know, my first seminary professor was an atheist. <laughs> he taught New Testament, and I, t- I was so excited. I was a Christian for three months. So excited. I get to, I get to study the Bible, and this guy, Dr. Witherspoon, Dr. Witherspoon laughs at Paul. He laughs at the New Testament. And I was aghast. I was like, I came in here to learn the scripture. I want to learn love Jesus. But you know what? He did me a favor because I, sunk, I went after everything I could to find out what, if what he was telling me was true. And so I studied and I read away from class in a different direction about it. 
And that's what I'm saying with this. There is a culture clash that is pressing in on our children and on us, the city of man that we don't recognize many times, that we need to be aware of. Now, the next thing they do is look what they do in verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. That is, they were indulging them. You know, come on, let's uh, come on over here and, and experience this. Oh, you've never done that? You've never tasted that? Come over here, try this. This is, uh, it's, it's, it's all sensory, isn't it? Because let's come and experience this. Let's taste this. Let's drink this. And that's a part of the cultural pool. And it's a part of the indoctrination. It's a part of saying, okay, we're going to promise you the delights of the land if you will just give up this and move this way. And that's hard for a young person. When you've got all these friends around them and they want to be accepted and they want to be liked and they want to be a part of the crew. And if the feet are not sunk deep down again into faith of knowing who you are, it's easy to get pushed. It's easy to get blown away. It's easy enough for us adults, right? It is. And so they indulge. There's this indulging. And, um, you know, they tell you that, that uh, a little religion, people will, I had a guy tell me that one time. He said, he said, a little religion is okay, but too much is, yeah, that's just too much. <laughs> too much is too much, you know. And, and I was like, what is too much? I, I don't know. He says, well, you, you, know, you can go to church on Sundays. You can have your Sunday mornings, but the rest of the week you're mine. And that's what he told me. And he's like, I don't want any church stuff the other six days, and, and, but you can have church on Sunday. And you can keep it there. Don't bring it into this office and don't bring it on this job. Whatever you do, don't do it. And so a little bit. You know, is okay of ours, but then they will indulge themselves and everything else and try to pull us into it. So through identifying, isolating, indoctrinating, indulging, and then what happens? Identity confusion. I'm not sure who I am. Verses 6 and 7. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. What's in a name? Next week, we launch a series on the names of God because the names of God show the character of God. And he's so multifaceted that he has many names in the scriptures that we're going to learn so that we can come to appreciate who God is. Why did they change their name? Daniel, the name Daniel, E-L, the last part of his name is a shout-out to Elohim, the Lord God. Daniel, what did they change his name to? Belteshazzar, Bel, is the word of the Babylonian God, is a, is a root to that. You see what's going on? There's an identity switch. I'm going to switch the identity from that of the Lord God now to the Babylonian God. Azariah, Ah, or Yah, that is a direct, Azariah was named with a shout-out to Jehovah. Azariah. And what did he get changed to? Abednego, Nego or Nebo, another Babylonian god. Our identity is very important. And when we lose our, every one of these names is the same. When we lose our identity in Christ, if we don't know who we are in Christ, then we take a whole other identity or this culture will give us another identity. We will be known as this, you are a great student, you are a great lawyer, you are a great surfer, you are a great this, you are a great that. No, you know what I am? I'm a child of God. First and foremost, 
a citizen of the kingdom of God, whom God paid the, the, the most expensive price for so that I could be a part of it. And though all these different names will come and go, my name is I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. I am a child of God. And we have to sink again our feet deep down into the roots of our identity in Christ and who we are in order to know who we are in this election season. Everybody's telling you you're, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're an independent, you're a whatever, you're whatever. I'm like, no, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. I'm going to pray. I'm going to study. I'm going to look at everything I can and I will make my choices, but I am not any of those things. I am first and primary a child of God and I will make my decisions about life around that. And this has become no more important than it is right now. Right now for us. Identity confusion. We need our identity firm and secure. And lastly, this is where this will head and where I think we've headed now is that our culture will try to redefine life. It redefines what life really is. You know, the early church was known for quite a few things, but in the first 150 years, it was known for caring for those who were cared less for. When a baby girl was born in those early days of the church, the father wanted a boy. He didn't want girls. So he would take that newborn baby and he would throw it out the window onto the streets. And those new Christians, that first generation and second and third generations of Christians would walk the streets of the city and find those baby girls and take them into their home and try to save them and raise them. When the plagues hit all of Europe and hit even in the Middle East at the 350, 250 along in that period of time, hundreds of thousands of people dying. The Christians of that era, you know what they did? They put their own lives on the line to go and save the pagan sick, not just the Christian sick. They put themselves around those who were infected in order to care for them and give them comfort in their last few moments. That's the heritage you have, Christian. That is the value of life and the sanctity of life, that every life is special and given by God. I honestly got sick on my stomach when I heard last week a Supreme Court justice say that it is healthier to have an abortion than it is to have a baby. And I thought, that may be true, but why would you say that? Because there is a value statement in that in many ways, depending on how you hear it and your perspective. We have, our culture has minimized life. Minimized life. I want to give you another example. It's not only abortion. There was a young lady, Brittany Maynard, a few years ago, just a couple of years ago. She was 29 years old. She found out that she had brain, inoperable brain cancer, though they tried to, to save her, sad, such a sad story. It was just married and had all of life before her. Brittany decided that she was not going to die like that with anybody watching her fade away. And so she moved to Oregon, which is a self-assisted suicide state. I think there's five states in the U.S. that, that uh, have this as it being legal. And so she moved there, and she became an advocate for uh, 
suicide for when it's terminally ill. And, and it's not you just get a pill and do it. There's a whole process you go through with a doctor and all of this. But then they issue a suicide pill to you. And uh, you take it when you want to. Well, there was another girl as well that was going through a very difficult time. Her name was Kara Tippetts. Kara Tippetts was a 39-year-old mother of four. Kara was also a church planter. She and her husband went to Colorado Springs to plant a church. When they got there, she found out one morning that she had breast cancer and prognosis was not good. And I would, I would ask you to, you could look her up. She has, Karen and I watched videos last night and we just smiled and wept and she blogged and videoed her whole journey. And boy, what a difference of perspective of life did Kara have? I want to read a letter. It's going to be up here. It's, this is not the whole letter because it was kind of long. I didn't put uh, the shout outs to her oncologist because she loved him and said that he was there for her and going to walk with her all the way through the whole thing. So I put, for time's sake, I took some of this out. But this is a letter she wrote to Brittany Maynard that Kara wrote. This morning, my best friend and I read your story. My heart ached for you and I'm simply grieved by your terminal brain tumor. For the less than six months the doctors gave you. You just passed your 29th birthday. With a heavy heart I left my home and headed for my oncologist. I too am dying Brittany. My oncologist and I sat for a long time with hurting hearts for your story. We spoke in gentle tones discussing the hard path you were being asked to travel. I came home and my friend and I sat on the bed of my five year old and prayed for you. We simply prayed you would hear my words from the most tender and beautifully broken place in my heart. We prayed you would hear my words that on paper coming from a place of tender love and knowing. Knowing what it is to know the horizon of your days that once felt limitless now feels to be dimming. So hear these words from a heart full of love for you. Brittany, your life matters. Your story matters. And your suffering matters. Brittany, I love you and I'm sorry you are dying. I am sorry that we are both being asked to walk a road that feels simply impossible to walk. I think the telling of your story is important. I think it is good for our culture to know what is happening in Oregon. It's a discussion that needs to be brought out of the quiet corners and brought brightly into the light. You sharing your story has done that. It matters and it is unbelievably important. Thank you. Dear heart, we simply disagree. Suffering is not the absence of goodness. It is not the absence of beauty. But perhaps it can be the place where true beauty can be known. In your choosing your own death, you are robbing those that love you with such tenderness, the opportunity of meeting you in your last moments and extending you love in your last, last breaths. As I sit on the bed of my young daughter praying for you, I wonder over the impossibility of understanding that one day the story of my young daughter will be made beautiful in her living because she witnessed my dying. That last kiss, that last warm touch, that last breath matters but it was never intended for us to decide when that last breath is breathed. Knowing Jesus, knowing that he understands my hard goodbye, he walks with me in my dying. My heart longs for you to know him in your dying because in his dying, he protected my living. My living is beyond this place. Brittany, when we trust Jesus to be the carrier, protector, redeemer of our hearts, death is no longer dying. My heart longs for you to know this truth, this love, this forever living. I pray my words reach you. I pray they reach the multitudes that are looking at your story and believing the lie that suffering is a mistake, that dying isn't to be braved, that choosing our death is the courageous story. No, 
hastening death was never what God intended. But in our dying, he does meet us with his beautiful grace. I get to partner with my doctor in my dying. And it's going to be a beautiful and painful journey for us all. But hear me, it is not a mistake. Beauty will meet us in that last breath. Now that is the culture of life. In the midst of a very trying and tough situation. Once we go down the road in the city of man to where we choose, it won't be long before we're choosing for other people as well. Those that can't contribute to society anymore. Those who maybe are taking more funds away from society than they're contributing to it. Uh, it probably won't be long before we find a, 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 that Supreme Court says that it's a constitutional right for us to be able to take our lives when we want to. But we people of the kingdom are a people of life. Right to the last breath because the last breath is not the ending of life. We are on this earth to bring hope for a new life and to be with one another as long as we have life. That is our call. We are called to be citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You can't vote the leader in. You can't vote him out. He is a good, kind, righteous leader God Almighty, and he has come and he has sent us into this world at this time to be his people. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.